Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Navarapu, host of this channel, and today I'm in conversation with Dr. Jacob Doherty, author of the brand new book titled Waste Worlds, Inhabiting Kampala's Infrastructures of Disposability, which was published by the University of California Press in 2021. Dr. Doherty is a lecturer of anthropology at the University of Edinburgh, and this is his first book. Congratulations on the book, Jacob, and welcome to New Books Network. You're uh, a New Books Network host yourself, so I suppose in many ways, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, really a pleasure to be here and to have a chance to talk about the book. Yeah, and uh, I must begin this conversation by acknowledging that Waste Worlds has a fantastic cover. So, you know, it's a very attractive, arresting cover, and the contents of the book are equally promising and arresting. Uh, but before we uh, get started about the book, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you became an anthropologist? Yeah, of course. So I'm a lecturer in the anthropology of development at the University of Edinburgh, Um, although I grew up in the United States in uh, northern Virginia in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and discovered anthropology as an undergraduate at the University of Mary Washington. Um, And this was during the buildup to the Iraq war in 2002, 2003. And I really found, I hadn't, didn't really show what it was, but just took intro as a, as an elective course, but found that it was really the place where I was best able to think and, uh, and learn more in a kind of less imperialist view of, of, of the world and and what was going on at the time Um, and to engage differently in thinking about the politics and lives of people outside the global north and thinking critically about processes of globalization, things that were tying the world together, and their historical depth. Um, so it kind of was really a breath of fresh air after some of the other courses I was taking at the time. And I guess suburban life um, around then also meant I was especially interested in urban form and the built environment in cars and alienation 
um, in things like bland office parks that were emblazoned with defense contractor logos and what this meant about the war that was coming, about the politics of oil and violence. Um, and yeah, I just found anthropology to be a really compelling discipline to think uh, and learn about all of this stuff, um, th- particularly, you know, drawn to the kind of ethnographic approach uh, that was at the center of it. And I guess at the time, I was also participating in the local chapter of Food Not Bombs, uh, an organization discussed in David uh, Border giles amazing new book, um, which was a kind of protest organization uh, that used uh, that, that found food in the waste stream, repurposed it and, and used it to stage uh, to, to hold these events, to, to produce meals for people in public space and to criticize uh, the war. So I think that was kind of the interest in my, the origin of my interest in kind of the politics of waste and disposability and the protest potentials of garbage that then came back to haunt me a few years later. And yeah, from Mary Washington, I moved on to the new school where I did an MA in anthropology and then Stanford where I did my PhD um, and where this project kind of has its origins. Um, and I've been back in the UK since 2018. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, that's a very... Uh, interesting journey you've had um, to anthropology. And I really love listening to the various journeys that people have taken. Um, Each author seems to have their own story, which is so great. Um, So Waste Worlds, uh, as you uh, put in the first few pages of your book, is a study of the dynamics of development and disposability in contemporary Kampala with a view to understanding capital-led urban transformations and the forms of labor that go into creating the ever-evasive clean city so how did this particular book project begin? What's the story of this book? Yeah, that's a really, um, it's a good question. That uh, It starts actually still with oil. I first went to Uganda interested in um, the nascent oil industry and urbanization connected to that, thinking about the disjuncture between the amount of money and, and capital involved and the amount of labor, and so thinking about oil-led development. Um, and so first went to Kampala to do preliminary work on that project, um, but discovered some kind of challenges that would, yeah, made it not not the, the project I wanted to work on for my PhD. Um, but during the course of that, met a lot of environmentalists and environmental activists in Kampala um, who had a lot to say actually about Kampala itself. And throughout throughout this time, the a lot of commentary about waste and garbage and what apparently was a garbage crisis in the city. So I hadn't gone to Uganda looking for rubbish, but kind of uh, was was diverted towards it, though I guess had proclivities to, to, to noticing and seeing it from Food Not Bombs. Uh, activism previously and from from some from some work I'd done on gentrification and environmental artifacts like big belly tr- solar trash cans in the United States um, so yeah I found that kind of there were there were these kind of two stories that people were telling about rubbish and the garbage crisis in Kampala that there was a story that this is you know you could point to a, a pile of a heap of rubbish by the side of the road and say this is evidence of the state abandoning us of the kind of failures of the the current government to take care of the city, to take care of the population, and sort of use it as a form of political critique of the state's failure to deliver services. And on the other hand, this kind of moral critique of the population that would take a similar um, heap of rubbish and say, this is our moral failure as a people to take care of our environment, um, to take care of the city, and and that what are the sort of introspective, what are we doing to the world? Kind of, are we failing to develop ourselves properly and adequately? Mm-hmm. So I was kind of struck by the kind of complexity, the the moral ambiguity, and the different kinds of critical projects that garbage engendered, and that um, 
that people were bringing to the city, so so uh, were bringing to the waste stream. So I decided to focus on that. And then the next year, in the first year of uh, its existence, this new uh, political entity that was governing the city, the Kampala Capital City Authority, that had come into existence in 2011, it really made garbage and urban cleanliness its primary focus. And so the kind of uh, formation of this new moment in the city, this new era of urban governance was really marked by the project of cleaning, by tackling garbage head on and by making this really the kind of first priority. Um, so based on that, I thought this, this would become a kind of useful way to think about changing political structures um, um, in, this, in the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think a lot of that resonated with me as I was reading it because I was thinking of how, how, uh, this critique pervades a uh, public discourse even in a place like India where garbage, yeah, as you said, is a both political critique as well as a moral critique. And I think the way you've written the book, uh, one can draw parallels in other contexts, like conceptually and analytically, which is uh, super useful. And um, yet, like the star of your book is clearly the ethnographic writing. And I, I was really wowed by it. And as part of your fieldwork, you followed the material movements of waste worlds that span several people, places, and objects around the city of Kampala. I was uh, taken by the range of stakeholders you were in conversation with and uh, truly appreciated the ways in which you were able to center the voices of your interlocutors in your work. Um, and I know that it's part of the wonderful Autelier series at the University of California Press. So I was hoping you could speak a little bit about the process of doing fieldwork, like what were its logistics? And the kinds of decisions you made um, while writing the book, uh, especially around um, sorting your field notes into a book format, what were the sorts of writer decisions you you made um, to write this particular book? Yeah, so thanks so much for the, the kind words about the, the writing. I think a lot of a lot's gone into that and a lot of a lot of people to thank for that. Um, and the connection to, to Indian um, to to the yeah, to the Indian example is really not totally surprising either, given that this is also deeply informed by a lot of work in urban studies and particularly in, in discard and waste studies from Indian uh, geographers, uh, historians, ethnographers of, of India too. Um, so yeah, I think the, the diversity of uh, stakeholders and actors in the ethnography is kind of, um, that was kind of one of the initial findings that I had and, and things that I decisions I had to make about structuring the fieldwork itself. Um, it was surprising in a way to find just the kind of huge number and diversity of engagements with the waste stream of different people who were involved from, I think, the, the state, the municipal government being the kind of most predictable, and then some of the private waste management companies, but then the number of NGOs, of community groups, of small-scale businesses, of informal Industry, informal enterprises um, of kind of everyday people who are involved, the, just the kind of sheer volume of interactions with this waste stream, with with this kind of material, um, made it so I think that had to be kind of one of the, the structuring factors of the fieldwork, along with the kind of um, um, the challenge of not having a kind of single immersive field site. So I didn't want it to be a kind of study of a landfill or a study of the municipal government um but sort of had a much more uh, fleeting and ephemeral relation to some of the field sites so a lot of groups or a lot of organizations that i was working with uh i had kind of long standing connections with and i would visit every couple of weeks or every couple of months over this two year period that i was conducting field work 
<clears throat> and partly that kind of reflected the nature of some of these groups, that they had a very ephemeral organi organizational existence, that they would come together for an intensive few days to conduct a cleaning campaign or to organize a sensitization event or to uh, create a huge number of these charcoal briquettes that they made using um, organic waste. Um, and so, or, or that they sort of existed in a kind of highly precarious, in some of the kind of uh, smaller, the, the less uh, well-established companies, uh, waste collection companies or, or informal recycling enterprises had a much more precarious existence where they, they would just sort of uh, collapse economically or be kind of displaced by um, by regulations or by yeah by uh, by policing and so a lot of this a lot of the kind of waste infrastructure that i was studying was very um highly peopled a lot of the infrastructure is people um in this case and had this kind of it was marked by the kind of precarity that urban life is marked by in itself so it had a much more kind of fleeting and ephemeral and, and diverse existence um so the logistics of this meant to lots of cold calling, uh, trying to find phone numbers, ringing people up and seeing if they'd be willing to talk, but also a lot of kind of fortuitous introductions following these kind of cleaning campaigns um, meant that the, one of the efforts that they tried to do was to bring lots of different stakeholders and actors together. So they became very useful ways to meet a lot of people um, and to sort of follow up with them over the over the few weeks. So that was either people involved uh, in, in the government, people in private companies, uh, NGOs, community organizations, and so on, uh, who were all deeply involved. So a lot of people... Uh, sort of ordinary residents of the of of the city didn't necessarily think that much about it. It's a kind of um, think about think that much about rubbish or the, the politics of waste. Um, didn't and so didn't have much to say about it. Uh, if if you asked them, but a lot of the people who were really involved in this were thinking really carefully and were really dedicated to this to to waste and and um, recycling and garbage collection as a problem, and had a huge amount to share and were really eager to talk and discuss it and and meet other people who were thinking thinking deeply about waste. Um, so I benefited a lot from some of these kind of key key interlocutors across the city who were all positioned very differently relative to each other and, and relative to the waste stream, but who were very keen and, and eager to talk about their their experience experiences and their kind of uh, projects that they were involved in. In terms of the writing, had very helpful uh, editorial feedback from um, Kevin O'Neill, who's the Atelier uh, editor, and Kate Marshall at UC Press, as I was writing, who really yeah, encouraged letting the ethnographic writing come to the fore and use that as the kind of um, primary analytical voice of the book. Um, so that was my main concern as I was revising the manuscript. Um, I actually printed out all of my field notes and interview transcripts early on in the writing process and kept them ready at hand throughout and was kind of continually returning to them, annotating, skimming, rereading, finding uh, finding stories and reminding myself of moments that I'd uh, almost forgotten about or uh, conversations that had come and gone very quickly or my own kind of reflections that I'd had um, and was just amazed at how much was in the in the field notes every time I kind of returned to them which I think is maybe something that is quite common to field work is that you get very immersed in it and kind of uh, don't realize how familiar you've become until you have a little bit of uh, temporal or spatial distance to, to it and the notes kind of uh, allow that kind of storytelling to, to take place a little bit more easily and that also I guess took place in conversation with other anthropologists and urban studies um, researchers during the writing of the writing of the book uh, that helped me return to this material every time with new questions and and to find new observations in there so the, in a way the hardest part the biggest dilemmas were about cutting things and sort of removing ethnographic 
removing some of the ethnographic material or conceptual engagements from the manuscript and kind of wrangling it into this more streamlined form. But I guess having having written a few articles makes that a little bit easier because you can let go of some of the some of those materials that have already found a place somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's I find it so hard to let go, especially if I've written uh, a vignette with a lot of care, and then suddenly it doesn't have any space in this particular chapter article. It really breaks my heart to have to take it out. But I guess that's also a fairly common experience of ethnographers and um, and uh, qualitative research writers. Um, yeah, so one of the several clever and useful concepts that fuel the book is um, that of disposability. So could you speak a little bit about how you think about disposability in this book? <clears throat> yeah, for sure. So one of the kind of critical uh, interventions I want to make with the book is to to have a... a develop a kind of critical use, a critical engagement with the metaphorical use of disposability that you often see in the way people, uh, scholars will talk about how um, people are being treated like garbage. So perhaps the, the clearest example of this is maybe Sigmund Bauman's uh, Wasted Lives, but it's a quite common metaphor that you see for thinking about abandonment and inequality in the neoliberal world. This idea that people are being thrown away just like rubbish. And I think this this formulation of obviously has some affective power. Um, but I think as a lot of other waste researchers has pointed out, it misses some really important aspects about the actual nature of disposal and the social forms and ecological effects that it that it takes. And in a way, so it, it presumes too much about trash, uh, about where it comes from. And so I was drawn through research and discard studies to examine some of the great material culture history on disposable goods and disposability as a kind of, uh, as a material um, uh, presence and and how this is tied to consumer culture to consider things like one-time use goods and disposability as not being accidental or just a kind of inevitable outcome of kind of consumer desires or kind of mistreatment or abandonment but it's a kind of built-in design feature of so many goods that it's become kind of essential to the production and maintenance of hygiene or sanitary spaces if we think about hospital settings that rely on kind of uh, disposable goods to produce uh to produce hygiene. Um, but it's also something that had to be taught and valorized uh, at a particular moment in time at the end of the Second World War that was kind of critical to the, the changing material uh, life in suburban America, for example, that this is something that had to become acceptable to consumers who were maybe used to valuing things like durability. And so it became tied to new regimes of mobility or ideologies of convenience, as well as kind of changing gendered ideas about housework and labor or freedom and the body and all of this, all of this kind of cultural change that went into it. And all that kind of tied to the kind of new technologies for manufacturing plastics and the global production and surplus of oil that fueled and made that kind of material cultural material culture and abundance uh, kind of inescapable. So disposability, I think, is really generative and creative, even if it's highly destructive. It's not just a kind of end end of uh, end of life state where nothing happens. It's it's also importantly something structurally necessary even as the individual uh, disposable uh, objects are individually discardable. So it's a kind of condition of possibility for a lot of life in a way. And I think not just in terms of production, but the afterlives of kind of consumer goods like this are not just empty, but generative of like huge, vast infrastructures of disposability, 
uh, landfills, waste management systems, huge numbers of livelihoods and so on, all that go into kind of taking and throwing things away. So it's not just a kind of moment of abandonment or exclusion, but entire system of kind of managed expulsion or, or, or yeah. And so I think that became that became useful for thinking about disposability, not metaphorically, but materially as something that is about how things are thrown away, but also about how um, economic structures and, and ideologies produce the possibility of discarding people who occupy this kind of similar structural condition of essentialness, but also uh, individual disposability. Yeah, and um, thank you for that. That was very helpful like, to anchor the conversation about uh, the specific chapters in the book. Um, and to in the in the first part of the book, you persuasively show how cleanliness and order become the stuff of politics and um, how they've shaped political authority in uh, Kampala in the past few decades. Um, I was also very intrigued by your chapter, Selfies of the State, as it detailed how repairing the image of the city finds its digital manifestation and the kinds of visual narratives that the state wants to populate public discourse with. So I would love for you to give us some context around the historical emergence of waste as an object of governance in the city and perhaps locate these new initiatives, say, around uh, the selfies of the state, as you put it, in this context um, of Kampala's development into a, into a big urban um, you know, city. Yeah. So the idea of selfies of the state came came from noticing the from following the kind of social media feeds uh, of the Kampala Capital City Authority uh, on on Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram, and noticing a kind of interesting way that infrastructure and waste in particular became visible in these. So in in a lot of infrastructure scholarship, there's this idea that. Infrastructure is stuff that we don't think about or don't notice or that doesn't have any kind of visual status except in exceptional moments of failure where there's a rupture in infrastructure that makes it become apparent uh, or visible in new ways or alternately in sort of moments of spectacular uh, inauguration where things are being launched, right, uh, ribbon cuttings and so on. But what I noticed um, in the, the kind of self-representations of its work that the KCCA was doing was a kind of really careful visual attention to quite banal and mundane aspects of infrastructure and routine maintenance. So lots of photos of cleaning up streets, of filling in potholes, uh, the kind of before and after snapshots of drains that had been cleared or the installation of rubbish bins. Um, and so... I was trying to so the the kind of existing uh, existing theories about infrastructural visibility didn't really help to make sense of this kind of very non spectacular uh, form of repair and improvement in infrastructure. So the argument so so the way I came to understand this was that there's a kind of the the KCCA was a newly established political authority that came into existence through an act of the Ugandan government that essentially took political power away from the elected representatives of the population who have historically over the last few decades come from the opposition party um, and instead gave it to a presidentially appointed uh, CEO of the city uh, who, who was understood by a lot of the population uh, to be a kind of representative of the ruling regime. So there was a kind of power grab going on uh, in the eyes. And so the legitimacy and the authority of this new body was under deep question at the time of its formation, which was also uh, in the wake of the 2011 
political election that saw huge protests and uh, police suppression uh, of those protests in the wake of the election. So the legitimacy of this authority was kind of always in question. And these kind of self-representations, I think, emerged as a way for this new government to mark a break or rupture between itself and to legitimize itself, not through kind of making spectacular promises about what changes it would bring, but by documenting the very kind of real, everyday, mundane work it was doing to fill in potholes, to clear drains, to prevent flooding, uh, to do all of this kind of routine work that they accused the previous uh, government of neglecting uh, because they were too focused on doing politics. So there's a very explicitly anti-political bent to a lot of this uh, that said politics is the problem. And by getting rid of politics from the governance of the city, we can um, give rise to a new kind of era in, in the governance of Kampala. So it's not just that waste becomes an object of governance, but it's also that waste is a substance through which new forms of governance and authority articulate and legitimate themselves. And so acting kind of, uh, you know, almost universally accepted problem of garbage management in the city became this way for the state to kind of establish itself. Um, but this isn't a kind of new, a totally new occurrence in the city. Um, and looking back at some of the kind of colonial archive and colonial ethnographies, we can see a kind of contested framing in the early, uh, early 20th century around uh, the cleanliness of the city with competing interpretations of whether or not Buganda, um, the, uh, the colonial the colonial state and the kingdom uh, was a kind of clean place that sort of evidenced the authority and power of the kingdom to rule. And so there's a kind of uh, pre-colonial uh, practice of cleaning exercises and road maintenance where the, the kingdom would call out the population to help clean and maintain roads uh, to produce the kind of clean city. Um, so there's, there's one kind of way that the sort of there's a way of understanding the pre-colonial state as having this kind of authority partially through its ability to maintain roads and, and their cleanliness. But not a kind of competing authority, a competing kind of medical public health gaze that saw the African city as a kind of uh, highly polluted and dangerous, um, uh, highly, yeah, this kind of highly racialized way of looking at the, the African city as something dangerous and polluting that needed to be cleaned. And so a lot of the colonial states' medical authority came from these kind of acts of cleaning, including hut burnings and anti-plague activities and rat uh, activities to kind of seek out rats and kill rats. So the kind of formation and contestation of political authority and who has the right to govern and on what legitimate basis that governance can take place has throughout the history of the city uh, often been fought over the kind of terrain of waste and waste management. So the KCCA is the kind of latest in this kind of long-standing, uh, long-standing struggle over governing the city through its wastes. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and in the book, you also explore the forms and lives of labor that go into the production and maintenance of waste infrastructures, the kinds of labors that keep uh, waste moving. And uh, you think through the term parasite that one of your interlocutors uses to refer to traders and middlemen who would, it might seem profit from landfills. So could you tell us a little bit about the conceptual malleability of the term parasite and uh, what it affords us in thinking about waste worlds? Yeah, so the, the, the term first kind of came into, the, came into my uh, awareness uh, when I was riding in a, the back of a minibus with one of my long-term interlocutors who, was, uh, who had been a waste collector himself, who had tried and struggled to establish a cooperative of waste collectors uh, who were doing recycling um, and was currently the, the marketing agent for, uh, for a waste management company in the city. And we were on our way to the landfill where he was going to introduce me to a few people that he knew there. And on the way, we noticed, uh, we saw the, the kiosks of waste traders that, uh, that line the road on the way into the landfill. And these are, these are sites where people buy and sell plastic, people who have enough capital to invest in a scale and a bit of land um, and to buy plastic at volume can collect enough to then sell on to recycling firms. And for, for, for Victor, uh, this the the man, the man I was traveling with. These are kind of the the main problem that he saw in the sector was these kind of middlemen who sap off all the profits, who exploit the traders like himself, um, and uh, don't uh, yeah, and, and sort of take money out of the industry of recycling without putting anything back in. Um, so we had a conversation about that, um, um, and that's not exactly the way that I use the term um, myself, but I think it became a useful way for thinking about. Uh, the proliferation of unauthorized spaces and activities that I saw being generated alongside the waste stream. And so my reading of it um, is theoretically inspired by Michel Serre and Jennifer Gabrice in particular, who've kind of returned to this idea of parasite and parasitism as a way to interpret and describe the dynamics of waste and this kind of proliferation of, of heterogeneity. Um, and to think about the kind of huge amount of activity that actually produces the flow of garbage outside of the city. So there's this idea of the kind of normative waste stream where garbage is generated domestically, for example, enters a bin and then is collected on a routine schedule. It goes from the bin in your house to a bin outside of your house into the, a, a rubbish truck that then takes it to a landfill where it's buried. And it's designed to kind of minimize human contact between uh, or contact between humans and waste and to kind of produce a, a, as much as possible this hermetically sealed stream connecting domestic spaces to the kind of ultimate geographies um, of, of disposal. But the reality of kind of everyday domestic practices um, of all the different ways that people dispose of garbage in the home, of unauthorized collection companies, of illicit practices within the municipal uh, collection and within private sector firms themselves, uh, the ways that elected officials kind of bureaucratically manage and logistically maneuver to deliver service to their constituents, all of the entire recycling sector in the city, all of this kind of goes against this kind of normative idea of the sealed waste stream. And so the idea of parasites emerged to think about the way that these exist alongside and intersecting with the, these kind of sites emerge alongside and intersecting with the kind of normative stream um, the normative waste stream, and that these aren't just kind of marginal, but they're actually central to how things are actually thrown away. It's not a kind of discrete or isolated sector, but something that's emerged 
historically in tandem with and structured by and provide services that the formal sector rely on. So I think there's two kind of key examples of this that kind of demonstrate the instability of parasitism, the question of who is parasiting who. Um, so one is the way that wages for formal workers working for the municipal government and for private waste firms, which were set at the time at around two US dollars a day. Um, so, so workers could double that wage by collecting plastics and other recyclables from the waste as they worked, uh, and sell it onto these kind of traders that uh, that my that my friend had identified as parasites. So, the the kind of low wages paid by the the formal sector was supplemented, and it was made a viable form of work through these workers' engagements with the kind of illicit sector. So, in a way, they they're subsidizing the formal collection service through their work. Uh, that sort of makes them earn a, a livable um, income. And then similarly, the four or 500 collectors who were working at the municipal landfill had this status of technically being illegal, but being tacitly uh, tolerated. Um, and sort of they were well known to the municipal engineers and municipal workers at the site. Um, and recognized not just because they were there and earning a living, but because they were providing an important service of removing huge t- amounts of volume uh, and, and kilos and kilos, tons of kilos every day from the landfill, which helped to keep it open. So the official infrastructure itself, its life, it was already past its kind of uh, official shelf life. Um, and the new, new landfill sites were being identified at the time of this research. But the life of the landfill was being extended through these kinds of uh, practices that were technically illegal. So again, there's this way that there was a kind of subsidy being provided to the municipal, to the official system by these kind of uh, sites that existed alongside it, despite their kind of uh, illegality or um, yeah, their illicitness. So there's this kind of deep ambiguity of the relation between the official site and the parasite. And I think this became a useful way of theorizing um, an alternative to the kind of concept of informality that we fall back on too much in a kind of un, uncritical way sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and staying on that um, on that topic, I really enjoyed the way you showed how salvagers and informal waste collectors construct their self-identities in relation to garbage, right? And how the economy of salvage is, as you just put it, is neither legal or illegal, but quite central to the provision of municipal and private waste collection services. Um, You also show how local politicians possess a very intimate knowledge of the ins and outs of everyday disposal routines and bureaucratic practices, uh, which uh, show how infrastructure is assembled in practice. So um, how did your research and your findings debunk some of the popular official narratives and even community-based organization assumptions around waste collectors? Um, And yeah, how did your own assumptions change through fieldwork? So I think the most the most common story that I heard from NGOs and, and CBOs was that there's a a problem of um, lack of knowledge or lack of information, lack of capacity among the population, and that this is one of the kind of key origins of the garbage crisis in the city. So this common aware common assumption that people need awareness raising or they need to be sensitized. So I think in part this has to do with the fact that for uh, for a lot of low uh, NGOs and CBOs operating on quite tight budgets, telling people what should be done is much easier and it's more like your job. Uh, and it's much easier and cheaper than providing the resources and infrastructure that people actually need to do it. 
Um, but so, yeah, one of the things I found was how common that was as a script that a lot of people living in low-income communities, a lot of um, uh, a lot of waste collectors working in, in different informal sectors in, in different sites, often started our conversations by invoking this script of their, invoking their own unknowing or, or need for awareness or, or capacity building in some way. Um, but then went on to demonstrate the kind of in-depth knowledge that they actually had about the the waste stream, the substances that make it up, the different uses that uh, different materials could be put to, the sites that you needed to take different kinds of plastics or, or metals or cardboard to in order to get the best value from. So it's a kind of huge amount of knowledge that people actually have. And and not just that, but their kind of knowledge about what the official rules and regulations are around it. So people need you know, uh, waste collectors knew what they were doing that was allowed and what they were doing that wasn't allowed. And, and ordinary residents of, of a lot of these areas also understood the kind of what was licit and illicit and had a very good understanding of the rules around waste management, even as they weren't particularly well enforced. So it certainly wasn't a kind of issue of awareness or sensitization. People were deeply and, and intimately familiar with a lot of this. Um, so I think one, one example of that was this kind of idea that people needed to be um, sensitized about sorting and be taught the categories of waste that they needed to sort their materials into, uh, kind of perhaps misunderstanding this as as a NGOs maybe misunderstanding this as a kind of universal category of materiality rather than the kind of ways that markets determined what entities had value and what kinds of categories things needed to be sorted in, uh, in terms of the, their possible economic reuses within that specific context. So again, yeah, this idea of sensitization is that like people don't know, but the, the reality is that people were hugely informed about this. And I think beyond, beyond just that, there's a kind of assumption that people in the people working in this sector, um, uh, incapable of organization, that it's an inherently disorganized uh, form of economic life and therefore needs to be replaced by more official or capitalized firms. And so uh, a lot of the kind of uh, a lot of the kind of policies around that um, were, were sort of predicated on displacing and sort of the having companies that were able to be subjected to environmental impact assessments and things like that. There's a lot of examples from Latin America, from Asia and from elsewhere in Africa that show the capacity of waste workers to take part in transitions in the waste sector and to do so in a kind of just transition framework, that there's a lot of capacity for integration of these kind of existing services that either handle plastic recycling or that provide kind of last mile services connecting waste to places where uh, official infrastructures can gather it. So there's a lot of possibility for creative integration, although a lot of that research also shows the challenges involved in this, particularly if it's done on a kind of uh, cost, if it's done on a kind of has to be organized on a kind of um, cost sharing or profit profit generating model that and there's a lot of kind of precarity built into this uh, due to the kind of globally fluctuating prices of uh, recyclable materials and especially the kind of constant low cost of raw materials like new plastic. I think there's also a kind of fundamental problem of thinking of waste as a 
problem, not the production of wastes. And so there's a kind of conflation of litter, of the most visible forms of waste that we see with pollution itself, where these most visible forms of waste get the most attention and we can and we can see NGOs paying attention to the kind of uh, the these discourses of a clean city that pay attention to littering rather than to the production of waste. So I think, yeah, there's, there's need for a bit more critical attention to the sources of waste and the centrality of disposable one-time use things like plastics to the, that have become central as the basis of material life, but have a kind of central role in changing the nature of soils and giving rise to flooding and, and so much more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you write so powerfully about the politics of respectability or to be more specific, uh, developmental respectability around cleanliness campaigns and moral discourses around sanitation in Kampala. And uh, we're just talking about it, but uh, I guess I would love to know what are the colonial genealogies of the politics of respectability uh, and how do cleanliness campaigns intersect with teleological narratives around development and progress? I know it's been a theme throughout our conversation, but I would love for you to speak a little more about it. Yeah, so this this kind of... Um, analysis in the book is responding, is inspired by Pierre's book, The Predicament of Blackness, which urges us to think a lot more carefully um, about the ways that race and racism operate in post-colonial urban Africa, be it from the structure of the state or the development industry to the extractive economies of racial capitalism or the kind of much more intimate and embodied forms of desire that sustain things like whitening creams or other kinds of beauty standards. So one of the things that I found most striking that I observed throughout the research was the way that uh, dissatisfaction with the present conditions of the city were sometimes articulated through this kind of nostalgia for much more authoritarian political cultures or moments in the city's history before, uh, as people put it, politics or democracy ruined the discipline of the people. And so this included not just, uh, this included sometimes references to the, the 1970s and to the Amin regime, where there's this idea of a highly disciplined population, but also a kind of desire for sepia-toned kind of orderly streets of the colonial period. And you'd see this uh, sometimes on social media, with kind of uh, photos of the colonial colonial city circulating, and people saying, "Oh, why can't we have this anymore?" Um, things like that. But I also notice the ways that reporters and volunteers who were participating in some of these um, non non profit uh, NGO organized organized urban cleaning events, um, who who kind of came from from professional backgrounds or middle class backgrounds would come into low income areas of the city and spend a morning involved in an intensive cleaning campaign to clear out a hundred yards of a ditch, for example, or to to clean up roads to kind of get to clean up a backlog of a waste site that had developed and connect connect it to a. Uh, 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 rubbish truck that could come and gather up waste and help to kind of clean an area in this kind of consolidated period of time. But a lot of the kind of reporting and the narratives and the stories that people told about these relied on really familiar tropes about dirt and ignorance um, and and moral failure to describe the conditions that they found in the city's low income areas. And so, and a lot of these kind of resonate with and, and continue a kind of long tradition going back to the kind of colonial public health gaze on the African city as kind of uh, sites of medical and moral death and pollution in a way that was deeply, um, deeply tied together. 
so so there's this kind of very like yeah very uh clear link between this kind of ways of describing and understanding the problem of dirt and writing it onto the bodies of the urban population and their own kind of moral their own kind of moral failures and so in part there's a kind of re- i had a kind of reading of this um through the lens of american racial politics at the time but similar politics about about who deserves to live in urban space how proper modes of comportment give people moral status and this is something that's also been a kind of strategy for combating white supremacist assumptions, this politics of respectability, of uh, of lifting yourself up, of building a kind of uh, legitimate moral life, of, of, of abiding by the standards of um, the standards of respectability, but also reproduces that value system and the structure of feeling that it's predicated on and the forms of abandonment and exclusion that it gives rise to. So we can see this in in Kampala, particularly in the colonial history of gender and of the uh, the struggle to establish a proper place for women in the city, which was kind of highly governed through this politics of respectability that saw uh, that saw the single woman as a kind of moral problem that the city had to deal with, that saw women outside of the, the structure of the family um, as kind of not having not having a proper place. Um, in part through ideas of sexual impropriety that then gave rise to these ideas of cleaning up the city through policing the bodies and comportments and family lives of of women. And these kind of ideas of uplift and improvement have kind of given been articulated through the logics of development that has become not just a kind of national project, but also a personal population one for individuals to take on that then codes as backwards certain cultural practices or evidence as kind of evidence of village life that people who who fail to live up to the standards of the modern city uh it's not because of a kind of lack of infrastructure but because of this idea of village mentalities or kind of backwardsness that casts things like dirt as evidence not of the kind of very particular infrastructural configurations of waste management in the city but evidence of a kind of long-standing racial failure to live up to the ideals of of modern life and that combined with kind of neoliberal discourses around personal responsibility and highly individualized ideas of kind of moral failure and moral worth kind of ascribe on the urban poor responsibility for the infrastructural conditions of their own lives in a way that that sanctions and reproduces disposability, even as it, uh, through things like cleaning campaigns, has this kind of um, effort to articulate care and to, to engage in practices of cleaning and, and what what might look like mutual aid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, it's it's just been such a great uh, pleasure to like listen to you talk about the book and um, relive it in a way again. I really, really enjoyed reading it and I highly recommend it to everybody. I've already like been recommending it to a lot of people in my life. Um, thank you so much, Jacob, for taking time out to, to chat with me about the book. And But before I let you know, I would love to hear more about what you're working on now and what can we hope to read by you in the future. Thanks. Um, yeah, thanks so much for the, the kind words about the book and, and for all the recommendations. Um, over the last couple of years now, I've been working on a project on the politics of mobility and transport infrastructures in the Ivory Coast. Uh, so I've been doing some, ethno- well, before the pandemic, had been doing some ethnographic work in Abidjan on uh, the urban transition in mobility that's going on there as the kind of, as the city looks to uh 
implement a huge uh, reform to its urban mobility regime with the construction of a bus rapid transit and a metro rail system. So I've been looking at what this means for the existing transport network that has developed uh, over the 20th century uh, since the since independence, really. Um, but in particular, since the structural adjustment era of uh, popular transport providers from minibuses and shared taxis to, to taxis and, and pedestrians. So thinking about what... Um, what's going on in this sector and what the, the urban transition holds for them. So I've done a little bit of research there about uh, innovation and where it comes from in this in this sector to think about the story that we often hear about informality as kind of highly creative and, and innovative sort of form of urban infrastructure to think about how the kind of platforms of exploitation and the structures of uh the economic structures in in the sector uh, give rise to the, uh, the different geographies of of innovation with the emergence in the city of the auto of an auto rickshaw industry. So that's been in collaboration with uh, two geographers from the University of Kokodi, uh, Bamba Vakaramoko and Irene Cassie Jojo. And I've also been working there on questions about gender and social reproduction, thinking about social reproduction in terms of mobility and transportation, thinking about the ways that different kinds of uh, social reproductive practices that go into feeding the city should also be considered critical parts of transport infrastructure, um, but also the ways the affordances of um, existing transport infrastructures to provide things like food um, that, to keep the city fed, that move kids around, move kids to and from schools, for example, and how infrastructure and social reproduction are, are deeply entwined in ways that we need to, to recognize if, uh, if there's going to be a just transition that kind of uh, meets the needs of the population beyond just the kind of idea of the commuter getting to and from work. And the, the next piece of writing coming out of this has to do with uh, rent as one of the kind of key factors in thinking about how uh, how work in the informal transport sector takes place uh, and thinking about the politics of rent and rentiership um, as these kind of conflicts between existing popular infrastructures and the platform economy um, emerge. Mm-hmm. Wow, they all sound like really promising and exciting projects. I'm particularly incre- intrigued by the social reproduction and infrastructure one that you just talked about. I mean, um, it seems rather uh, it, it's like one of those things when you explain it, it's like, yeah, wow, like why haven't we been thinking about uh, infrastructure and social reproduction together? And I'm really excited to read more of your work and um, I wish you all the luck. I know that it's hard, I guess, doing field work or being an ethnographer during the pandemic has been interesting, if not hard. Um, but yeah, good luck with all of your work and I look forward to uh, staying in touch and uh, learning from each other in the in the future. Thank you so much, and thanks for the thanks for your your really insightful questions and for the invitation to join you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.